Good morning, everyone. It's good, to, uh, it's good to be together on this beautiful day. Are there any good dancers in our midst this morning? Derwin has his hand up at the back. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to make anybody, you know, if you put your hand up, I'm not going to make you dance. But um, if you've seen um, good dancers dance, uh, it is a thing of beauty. Um, I, I saw this on YouTube a few weeks ago. Watch this. You may not have recognized it, actually, but that was my wife Karen and I when we were little. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> By your laughter, I assume you don't believe me. <laughs> if you've ever seen me dance, there is no possible way that could ever, ever have been me. Um, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, if you've been to a wedding, uh, particularly a wedding where there's you know, a variety of, of generations there, um, you've probably seen a variety of different types of dancing. But, but I've been to a few weddings where two individuals uh, either get up and dance or they're just in the group of everybody dancing, and, but everyone just kind of steps back at some point because they know what they're doing. And it's a thing of beauty. Uh, I was at a wedding one time where... Uh, they, were, they had different generations there, so they were having times of different generations of music. And uh, this couple, who were probably in their, in their 70s at the time, got up and danced. And it was amazing. And it really, I, I got back up after that and went, well, gee, like, my sort of, you know, <laughs> just really pales in comparison now. Because these two individuals, it, it was like they, was, it was, they were like one unit. Uh, it was a waltz or whatever it was. I don't even know what, I, what it was. But they were, wh I'm out of sync with the music most of the time. And they were not only in sync with the music, like those people there, but they were in sync with one another. Uh, it was like they were moving as one unit. And when you see two people dance like that, smooth, seamless, it's a thing of beauty, isn't it? It's a thing of beauty. No matter what type of music it is, it's a thing of beauty. I want to say this to you this morning. There is a dance that goes on within our faith as Christians. It's a dance that's designed and intended by God to be a thing of beauty. The partners aren't two individuals. The partners are belief and behavior. What we believe and how we behave. Those are the two partners that are Designed, I believe, to, to do a, a daily dance in our Christian faith and in our Christian lives. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be seamless and, and smooth and a thing of beauty. But let's be realistic, just like my dancing and perhaps some of your dancing, that dance between what I believe and how I behave often is, is out of sync. I, I'm stepping on my own toes, as it were. What I believe and how I behave are out of step with one another. Um, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, often what we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken apart in our lives. That's part of the human experience. Or, put another way, what we know to be true, that's our belief, we sometimes don't experience as real in our daily lives. That's behavior. 
the connection between these two dance partners, belief and behavior, are really clear in, in Scripture, in the Bible. And equally so, that out of sync, that, that disconnect between our belief and our behavior, that's, that's really clear in Scripture as well. It's really clear um, specifically in the book of Ephesians, as an example. Ephesians is one of the books in the New Testament. Um, it was originally a letter uh, penned by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and he penned it around um, A.D. 60. He actually wrote it as a letter to the people, the new Christians in Ephesus, while he was in jail in Rome. Keep that in the back of your mind for uh, later on in the sermon. These were new Christians in Ephesus, uh, and he was writing a letter um, to, to speak to them both about belief and behavior. And although he doesn't talk about the dance, uh, as I read the entire book of Ephesians, uh, I, I get this, this, this sense that he's trying to teach them how to dance. He's trying to reinforce um, for these new believers certain aspects of what they believe and, and how that should affect their behavior. Paul paints a grand picture in Ephesians of what we believe as Christians. And then he uses what we believe as a frame for how we are to behave. What we believe about God should frame our behavior before God. It should be smooth and seamless. It should be a thing of beauty, just like the dancing we've talked about. Over the next few weeks, we're going to actually unpack um, a portion of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually going to unpack it in some pretty specific ways, but all under this theme of, of the dance, this belief and behavior. And, and we're going to take some time to, to specifically address some of the beliefs, some of the theology that Paul pulls out of Ephesians 1, that, that whole belief. What are we to believe? And then not just, not just for the sake of believing it, but how does that affect our behavior? How should that affect our daily lives so that there's that seamless thing of beauty, that dance happening in our lives that, quite frankly, just like we saw a few moments ago on the screen, will be very impressive to people who watch. Not in, a, not in an arrogant sense, but in a Wow, just a, an awe, a sense of awe at how seamless and beautiful it is. So we're going to take time to do that over the next few weeks. This morning, we're going to address the opening lines of Paul's letter. Um, if, you don't have, if you have a Bible, you might want to open up to Ephesians. There's some on the table back there. I can see I'm sure the ushers will leap to their feet. There they go. <laughs> Scott looks like a superhero leaping to his feet. And if you just give a little wave to, to one of them, they'll... Uh, they'll I almost said throw a Bible at you, but that <laughs> they will hand you a Bible, um, just so that you have it in front of you. It's going to be on the screen as well, but you might want to just have it in front of you, whatever you prefer. We're just going to take a look at two verses, just two verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That's all we're going to look at. And before I read those, let me just take a moment to pray. God, may your word the scriptures, the Bible, be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we're going to read this morning. Those are the opening lines of Paul's letter <clears throat> penned from jail in Rome to the people in Ephesus. 
The opening lines. Opening lines are important. Here's a little quiz for you. Where do these opening lines come from? The first one's really easy. If you can't get the first one, you've been living under some sort of rock. I, I, don't take that personally if you really don't know this, but a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, anyone had... <laughs> so close, <laughs> but wrong. Anybody else? Thank you. I was just for a second there. I was getting a little, getting a little nervous. Okay, it gets a little harder. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, correct, by Charles Dickens. Wow, excellent. How about this? How about this opening line? Whereas this country is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. What's that from? American Constitution? Wrong. The Canadian Constitution. I'll just let you all sit with your feelings of guilt at this point. For those of you for whom Canada is not your native land, I'm as equally as shamed as you are right now. How about this? When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with one another. What opening line is that? And now everyone's a scared dancer. <laughs> the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Good thing our pastor knows that one. <laughs> Did you know the previous one? No. <laughs> well, at least you were honest. At least you were honest. That's good. Don't underestimate the power and significance of opening lines. This the, the, it's brief, what I read for you just a moment ago, but it's the opening lines from Paul's letter. And it contains, three, it contains many words, but I want to focus on three words this morning. That's all I want to do. And it's, they're actually some of the words that in other sermons that I've done here, I've actually spoken about in, in certain contexts, but I, I just want to, I want to revisit them because you can't just breeze over and jump into verse 3 and keep on going in Ephesians 1. I want to focus on these three, three words. They're not just words. They're, they're, they're words that have some depth to them. They're theological words that, that drip with meaning, um, and, and they really have a lot to carry over to the other dance partner, to our, the behavior in our lives. The first word is the word saints. Saints. To the saints in Ephesus. What does the word saint mean? I mean, we hear about, you know, a bunch of saints in history. It might be our, the context. But, but if you really stop and think about it, what does the word saint mean? If you do some investigation, the word saint um, literally means holy person. It has this sense of, of holiness to it. A saint, if it's saint so-and-so, they've been, they've been, their, their, their holiness, their righteousness has been emphasized in some way. Um, in, in fact, the word saint really has this sense of one who, one who represents the holiness of God. One who, um, one who carries with them the holiness of God, the, the um, all that God is. And let me, let me, the, the best example I can come up with is, is that sense of, 
someone who is an ambassador, if someone is the ambassador um, uh, in the Canadian government, ambassador to the United States, as an example, that person before um, the authorities in the U.S. represents the government of Canada in the United States. They're the ambassador. They carry with them uh, uh, the weight and the authority of the Canadian government. So if the ambassador to the U.S. gets up and stands, for example, before a Congress and says something, he or she just isn't you know, giving their opinion, like, well, this is what I think. They're speaking on behalf of the government. They're speaking on behalf of you and me. That they're, they're taking the authority that is within the leadership of Canada and it's been bestowed on them as an ambassador and so they, they, they represent the government. That's the sense of, of the word saint, is that, that a saint carries with them, represents the holiness of God. Does that make sense? That's a powerful thing. Who's Paul addressing in this letter when he says the saints? Who, who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the new Christians in this in this. Um, backwater place called Ephesus that's really actually not all that impressive. These are new, and, and if you read about Ephesus, th- these, these likely were some rough and tumble people, but, but they, they, the, the, the good news of Jesus was proclaimed to them, and, and, uh, and they became Christians, followers of Jesus from all sorts of weird and wonderful pagan religions, and, and, and they said, no, we're going to follow Jesus. This good news makes sense. And so here they are, they, uh, I mean, if you're talking about this dance between belief and behavior, it's not that they had it all together like those, you know, salsa kids up there. It was pretty rough. But here's Paul, and in, in the opening lines, he says to them, hey, saints, how are you? Later in Ephesians, uh, we see Paul clarifying what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When these people said, okay, we're going to be followers of Jesus, um, he clarifies that. And, and in chapter 1, a little later on in chapter 1, we'll get to that in a, in a few weeks, but chapter 1, verse 15, he, he defines a follower of Jesus as one whose faith is in the Lord Jesus, who places their faith, their trust, leans their full weight on the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 3, verse 17, a little further on in the letter, um, he, he defines a follower of Jesus as one in whom Christ dwells through that faith. So there's this sense of, of Christ, the living Christ, indwelling us by his spirit, and, 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 and that is a defining characteristic of one who is a follower of Jesus. They place their faith in Jesus, and, and in some mystical way, some, some powerful way through the Holy Spirit, we're indwelled. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. And for those people, Paul says, hey, saints, how are you? He is recognizing, I'm sure here, from his prison cell in Rome, that these new believers, um, as I say, they don't have it all together, and, and they haven't always been saints. And in fact, later on in chapter 2, verse 3, he uses another name to describe them. In fact, he uses another name to describe himself, and he uses another name to describe you and me, all of us. He says, you know, you used to be, your name used to be objects of wrath. (laughs) That doesn't sound quite as nice. It doesn't look as good as on a business card as the word saints. But he said, that's what you used to be, an object of wrath, a focus of God's punishment. One who deserves 
the punishment, the wrath of God. That used to be your name. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. And, and, and we can, we'll cover this a little bit more in a few weeks. But, but, but he makes this grand transition in the next verse in chapter 2. And he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And so there's this name change that happens for those who, who place their, their faith in Jesus. And he says you go from being an object of wrath to a saint. In Christ, through faith, we experience a name change from object of wrath to saint. That's the good news. We've been remade. There's been a fundamental shift that has occurred through our faith in Jesus. We go from being objects of wrath to being renamed as saints. That's a key piece of theology right there. And I know even for some of us, the word theology makes us go... Oh, wait, no, but, that, but that's, a key, that's a key belief right here, and it's really key that we get it because it affects our behavior. Did you get that? Like, we're back to that dance again. It's really important that we get a handle on this name change for those who have, who have trusted Jesus, who have placed their faith in Jesus, go from object of wrath to saint, because that belief informs and shapes our behavior in a seamless, beautiful way. You see, we need to live in and out of our identity, of who scriptures tell us we are. We are saints, and we need to live in that and out of that. This is where belief and behavior dance. The belief that you are a saint affects the way you live your life for the rest of today and for tomorrow morning, particularly if you're not a morning person, and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. The belief, this, this, this belief that we are saints, that we've undergone this name change, and that we are now carriers of God's holiness, that affects our behavior. There should be a dance between those two things. That that sense, that, that reality that we're, we're a saint, that's what God sees us as and calls us, that should affect the way you view how you spend your time this week, whether it's in school or at a job, at a desk, or whatever it is that you occupy your time with. Your perspective on how you spend your time, on how you make your living, on what occupies you, should be affected by what God has called you, a saint. Get this. Think about your job for a second. And if you're in school, that's your job. Um, if you're retired, I'm not retired, but I know that's a full-time job too. I want you to think about your job within the context that God has declared you a saint. He has declared you as a carrier of his holiness as one who, repre- re- one who represents his holiness before a broken world. Does that switch how you behave in your job this week? Well, my boss is a jerk. <laughs> Just for the record, I'm not saying that, in case any of you know who my boss is. Um, <laughs> that could be pulled out of context. Um, but you might be thinking to yourself, well, my boss is really difficult. Or my coworkers are really difficult, or my supervisor, I just, it's really hard for me right now. Okay. 
but you got this dance going on. You're a saint in that position. Are you there by accident? <laughs> the God of the universe has put you there. You are to represent the holiness of God before that jerk. Did that put it in context? Does that mean you roll over and play dead and just, you know, get walked all over? No. But it puts a whole new context into whatever your job is, whatever the challenges are of your job. Or even if you love your job, you're, and that puts a whole new level on your job. You're not just there to crunch the numbers or to make the sales or whatever it is that you do. But you are there to do that, yes, to be a good employee. But you have a higher cosmic calling that, that actually we will be covering over the next few weeks. You're there as one who represents the holy God. You're a saint. Do you see the belief in the behavior now? That's working that's dancing in sync. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Do people at your work or at your school catch a, a, a glimpse of the splendor and the beauty of God's holiness when they interact with you? How about this? Many of us are in Christ, as Paul puts it. Our faith in Jesus has been declared. The name change has occurred. We're no longer objects of wrath. We're, we're saints. But if we're honest with ourselves, we live in shame most of the time. It might not be visible to other people. In fact, they might see us as very confident individuals. But, but if they could see inside of us, if, if, our, if our thoughts could be flashed up on the screen for people to see, they would see that we live in shame. We don't see ourselves as a saint. We see ourselves shamefully. There's a group called 10th Avenue North that a few years ago had a song called You Are More, and it, um, the words of that song have really gripped me. And, and the main point of the song is this. It's, it says this, Don't you know who you are? You are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems that you create. You've been remade. You used to be an object of wrath, but you're a saint now. That doesn't mean your life is perfect. That doesn't mean you are perfect. But you are more than those mistakes, than those choices, than those problems. You're a saint. In Christ, we've been remade, and we've been renamed, and we are saints. And we need to let that that reality, that belief, soak deeply so that it begins to more fully affect how we live our lives. When it comes to being a saint, if our behavior can get in step with our belief, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Here's the second word, grace. To the saints in Ephesus, grace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? I've mentioned this in other sermons, but it's just kind of where God has me right now. What, it, what is grace? Is that something you rhyme off before attacking your dinner plate? Is that all that grace is? Um, the dictionary goes much deeper. It talks about um, grace being unmerited favor, being given something you quite simply don't deserve. That's what grace is. Grace is not a wage, it's a gift. Grace is not something that, that you've, you're given because you, you, you have earned it. It's something that you are given as a gift. If someone is gracious to you, they are treating you in a way that you haven't earned. That's grace. 
And in the opening lines, the salutation of this book in Ephesians, this letter in Ephesians, to the church, to these followers of Jesus, to these ragtag bunch, Paul says, grace to you. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Christianity in a nutshell. Grace to you and to you and to you and to you and to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Unmerited favor, what you don't deserve, what you haven't earned, all of that from God to you. <laughs> so you sometimes we sit there and say, well, I, that's just, that's just mind-blowing. Exactly. That's the good news. Again, in chapter 2, Paul begins to unpack later in the letter, he identifies specifically what this grace looks like. Uh, and I've mentioned it already. You and I, objects of wrath, dead in our sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, great in love, makes us alive in Christ through faith. Our merit, zero. God's favor, full. That's grace. That's the good news. And that's what we mark, that's what we celebrate each time we gather together here as Christians to worship, to pray, to celebrate communion. That's what we ultimately what we gather to celebrate. The grace of God. Our merit, zero. His favor, full. That's critical theology. That word grace is loaded. It is what sets Christianity apart. And we need, all of us need, grace spoken over us this morning. If you are in Christ, if you understand that, that yes, um, as Paul defines it, I have placed my faith in Jesus and what he has done. And, and, and I can't fully explain it, but, but by his spirit, the presence of Christ is with me on a daily basis. I'm a follower of Jesus. If that's where you're at this morning, if that's what you believe, then, then you need to hear this grace to you, continued grace to you. If that's new for you, and, and you're, you perhaps are thinking, well, I've never heard that before, or, or I've heard it, but I'm still on the fence, I'm not quite convinced, I would speak the same thing over to you this morning. Grace to you. God continues to offer that grace to you. He invites you to come. Receive it. This belief, this, this, this theological sense of God's grace needs to soak deep. My friends, you cannot earn God's love. I cannot earn God's love. We cannot earn God's love. And here's the best part. We don't have to. We don't have to. Paul wanted the Christians, these new Christians in Ephesus to get this. And then to, to understand this, and then to have this reality, this belief, radically shape their behavior, even with one another. He wanted them to get this dance, and he wants us to get it too. Uh, this week, what, it would, what, it, what would it be like for you and I to live more in sync with this reality? How would our daily lives change if our behavior danced in step with this belief? How would your behavior change, even this week, if, if you really at a, at a deeper level, began to really get grace, to really understand and really experience the reality that you can't earn God's love. And here's the best part, you don't have to. Let me give you an example from my own life. 
I think we would find ourselves with far less need to prove ourselves to other people if we really got grace. If we really understood this belief, it would affect our behavior in that way. I, I, I really believe for my own life that I would spend a lot less time trying to prove myself to my boss, to my spouse, to parents, to professors, to friends, to strangers sometimes. How weird is that? I don't know about you, but sometimes I spend a whole lot of energy trying to prove myself, trying to lift myself up above others. And often I do that, get this, by finding fault with other people and sometimes by pointing out their faults to them. And in so doing, if I'm honest with myself, I'm actually trying to build myself up. Well, if I can knock you down a few notches, then I'm just standing taller. Am I alone in this? Probably not. But if we really started to get grace, if my belief and my behavior get in step, it's a beautiful thing. All of a sudden, I don't have any need to prove myself because I know who I am in Christ. And so instead of tearing you down, let me build you up. Let me lift you up. Do you see the difference? So, so all of a sudden, this critical piece of belief begins to dance beautifully with our behavior. Here's the third word. We had saints, grace, and peace. Peace to you, Paul says. What is peace? What is peace? Great question if you're watching the news lately. What is peace? Well, dictionary says it's a state of tranquility or quiet, harmony in relations, freedom from fears. <laughs> well, we need some of that for sure. Some of you... Some of you need peace spoken over you this morning. Let me remind you quickly of where peace begins according to Scripture. Paul talks about it in chapter 2 of it's this same letter. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, these objects of wrath, you who were once far away, you've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. For Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And he unpacks that a little bit more. But, but he points right back and he says, you know, the source of this peace for these objects of wrath, it's Jesus. Lesson number one when it comes to peace is this. It can only truly and completely and ultimately come to us through Jesus. We can search for peace in a myriad of other places, which we do, which our world does. But only in Jesus is true and lasting and full peace. This might be new for some of you. It might sound weird, frankly. Peace through Jesus. Perhaps you need to check it out more and talk it through more. But this is what Scripture teaches. This might not be new for some of you. Some of you are there in Christ, brought near to God through faith. And yet, you find yourself in desperate need of peace this morning. Life has kicked you in the stomach, perhaps. But here's the thing. The peace that Scripture talks about has absolutely nothing to do with current circumstances. That's the, that's the, the, the thing we need to get our, ourselves around. The scriptural, um, when Scripture talks about peace, it, it has nothing to do with our current situations. Please remember, Paul's writing this stuff in a jail cell in Rome, and it was no Holiday Inn, let me assure you. 
He's unjustly accusing, he's in jail, he's shackled, likely to some other smelly prisoner, and he's writing about the peace of God. Do you get the picture there? True, the true scriptural perspective on peace has nothing to do with surroundings. That doesn't mean that God's not interested in what's going on in our lives, he's intimately interested, but, but he offers us a shalom, a peace that is not dependent upon what we are going through, what we are enduring, what life has thrown at us. This full peace that is ours in Christ needs to be called down and called out in our lives. Some of us need to hear the words of Jesus in, an, in a fresh way this morning. They need to, we need to hear the words of Jesus when he, when he stood on that stormy sea of Galilee and to the disciples and, and, and saw the disciples struggling. He looked at the wind and he said, peace, be still. And it went quiet. Some of us need to hear the psalmist, um, uh, we need to hear those words echoed again and what the psalmist says, you know, be still and just know, just know that I'm God. Some of us need to get beyond memorizing those things and actually begin to experience them. We need to get, we need to get this belief, this, this sense of God's peace, and God, we need it to, to filter down into our daily life experience. We need to see that dance become seamless. For some of us, we're in stormy conditions where it is hard for our belief in God's peace to dance, to be in sync with our behavior because of the storm around us, the life situation. And yet, in that circumstance, we need to learn how to dance. In a moment, we're going to close the service with a song that we all know. We've been learning um, over the last number of months. But I I think the words of the song are actually um, the process of learning this dance. And I will call upon your name, and I'll keep my eyes above the waves... When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are mine. Translation, I'm a saint. I've been given a name change. Grace has come. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you've never failed and you won't start now. So I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours. And you are mine. Those are dancing lessons right there. What I know to be true, I want to experience as real this week, in that struggle, in that storm, some of you need peace spoken over you this morning. I'm going to call the worship team forward. Uh, We're going to close with that song. And as they come forward, let me pray for you. God, three words that I simply want to speak out to these followers of Jesus this morning. Saints, grace, and peace. Thank you for the power of these words and these opening lines in the book of Ephesians. May may they soak deeply, and may we learn, even this week, that dance of of those beliefs, those realities, sifting down into our behavior and into our life circumstances this week. Through Jesus we pray.